John chapter 20 this morning. How did we get here? I mean, you're in a church service here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, not a funeral. We're worshiping happily. We don't simply have a a sign, a street sign commemorating the name of Jesus, but we live in him and we believe he's still alive. How did we get here? Well, let's read on and talk more about this day, this glorious first day of the week, when Jesus showed himself. This chapter is filled with empirical, first-hand, eyewitness experience of the risen Jesus. There's a repetition of words like seen and saw and, and heard and said and showed. Several people in this chapter move from fear to faith, from tears to testifying, from doubt to worship. And now they stand as witnesses to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And we get to read their experiences, warts and all. There are some warts here. These are unlikely witnesses. Nevertheless, they are witnesses and true witnesses to the unsurpassed glory of the resurrection and the change that comes as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you or I were Jesus, but still living in this age today, if we wanted to go public with a resurrection and eternal life, we might hire an an advertising agency to help us, right? We would at least decide which TV station would, would first get the story. Perhaps we'd take a selfie, post it on Instagram with something clever below it, make everyone laugh and believe. Well, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He announces and shows his resurrection to some unlikely people, at least according to the wisdom of the world. But that's getting ahead of ourselves slightly. We don't have witnesses to the resurrection until we first have an empty tomb. That's where this chapter begins. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He was also put in a tomb Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy disciple, gave up his tomb and put Jesus in it and giving him a proper burial. And then early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she found the stone rolled away. So where this chapter begins is this, the mystery of an empty tomb. The mystery of an empty tomb, that's what verses 1 through 11 are about. Mary's immediate conclusion about the stone being rolled away is that they have taken the body of Jesus. She doesn't say who. Maybe she means the Roman soldiers or religious leaders or just any old grave robbers, which were a real nuisance in that day. She doesn't say who may have taken the Lord, but someone seems to have taken the body of the Lord. And so she runs to Peter and John By the way, John never refers to himself by name in this book. Uh, He either refers to himself as the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved. Nevertheless, Peter and John run to the tomb to check it out for themselves. And we get this quirky, almost comical telling of the story. In verse 4, it says they were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter 
and reach the tomb first. That wouldn't be funny or noteworthy unless there would also be verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, I might say, (laughs) slow Peter. You don't know if there's some sort of rivalry going on there or or what's going on, but, but it's funny, it's odd. John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. I wouldn't. I don't blame him. That seems a bit scary. But Peter gets there and he goes in. He's not the fastest, but he's usually the boldest. And then John goes in after. And here's what they see. Verse 6 in the middle there. The linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The neatly folded face cloth separated from the other cloths is too peculiar for John. And so he believed, it says. Believed what? He believed Jesus was alive. Not just that Jesus was missing like Mary believed. He believed. And it's the cloths that give it away. You see, someone stealing the body wouldn't have removed the burial garments first. Why would you? Someone stealing the body wouldn't remove the garments and then make two different piles for them. Someone stealing the body wouldn't neatly fold one of the cloths up. It has every appearance as though someone has unwrapped themselves in the tomb. And so John believes. He doesn't have it all figured out yet. Verse 9 says, As yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He didn't yet understand that the Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would be eternal, God himself. That that he would, yes, suffer, but then prosper. John didn't yet understand why Jesus must rise from the dead, like it says there. In verse 9, and hence he doesn't yet fully understand why Jesus had to die. He understands Jesus is alive. It's about as far as he's gotten so far. But at least he's honest. What an unlikely kind of witness we have here. He's honest. The first witness of the resurrection, or at least the first one to say, I think he's alive... Here in John 20 is a guy who's writing about himself and confessing that he only half got it. He didn't fully get it yet. He believed, but he didn't understand. And it would seem as though even the belief had little immediate effect on him. Verse 10 says they simply went back home. I don't know what else they would have done, but went back home sounds a little less of the reaction we might be looking for, or we imagine we would do. We're not told about the precise comings and goings of Mary and John and Peter in verse 10 and 11. In verse 10, the disciples go back home. In verse 11, Mary's back at the tomb. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. It would seem as though they missed each other. So Mary goes and tells them, Joseph, I'm sorry, Peter and, and uh, John run to the tomb. They, they discover the cloth. They make the conclusion. They head back home. And shortly after, Mary arrives back at the tomb, and she doesn't know of John's interpretation of these events that Jesus is alive. She assumes still that Jesus' body 
has been stolen. And she grieves. So that's the second scene. Jesus appears to grieving Mary. He appears to grieving Mary in verses 11 to 18. At least that's where it's headed in this next scene. See verse 11 again? But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now we read this already. We know in verse 12 she's going to see two angels. But, but don't get there too quickly. If this were a, a DVD, it'd be good for us to hit pause right at verse 11. She was weeping, and she stooped to look into the tomb. Hit pause and try to imagine her face here. Try to see something of her grief and her despair. Two times verse 11 refers to her weeping. It's a strong Greek word in the original. It means a loud, unrestrained kind of sobbing. And she stooped to look into the tomb, not because she heard the brush of angel feathers down below, but because she's heartbroken. She's numb in disbelief. She's reeling. She's longing for Jesus. She's even longing for the dead body of Jesus. She loves her Jesus so much. Okay, unpause on verse 11. We don't know how many seconds or milliseconds it took for her to look into the tomb and then for her eyes to land upon two angels, but we know her eyes did land upon two angels. Two angels sitting at either end, we're told, of where Jesus was laid. Verse 12, one at the head and one at the feet. That's a peculiar detail. We might be tempted at times in reading stories Maybe stories, especially in the Bible, to think, ah, that's an unneeded detail. It's just there because they knew it, and so they put it down. But oftentimes they're communicating in those details. I think this is a signal, a message. Two angels at either end. Another place in the Bible where we find angels at opposite ends of something is when we learn of the Ark of the Covenant. That gold box represented God's presence among his people. Not just his presence, but his mediating presence among his people. It's where sacrifices were done. The blood was spilt there on the very throne. It's God's presence through sacrifice among his people there in a gold box. And on the sides of the gold box, you've seen it in Indiana Jones, were those big gold wings. And they represented angels. Representing that the whole thing is God's throne room, as it were. If John has that in mind, then what he's telling us is that Jesus is now the place of God's presence. The new ark of the covenant. The mediating presence to his people. He's the sacrifice. He's the blood. He's the atonement. He's the covering. I doubt Mary sees all of that as she looks and just sees two angels, but I think John records it for us and wants us to see it. But what the angels say to Mary is, why are you weeping? Implying that the empty tomb shouldn't, shouldn't mean grave robbers, or bad news, but good news. It's not that Pilate had had added insult to injury by giving the body to the disciples, but then stealing it away two days later just for fun. She might be thinking that, but the empty tomb means 
no need to weep. Right then, Jesus appears. He asks the same question the angel did. Woman, why are you weeping? Maybe because of the shadows in a dark tomb. Maybe by divine design, Jesus kept his his appearance from her and then kept her from knowing who it is. Nevertheless, whatever that is, she doesn't recognize Jesus. She She thinks he's a gardener. And so she asked the gardener, has he done something with the body? Where's the body? Do you know where the body is? I want to get to the body. And then verse 16, I love this. He just says, Mary. That's it. It's a sentence. Mary. She knows the voice. She's heard it before. Maybe he says it a certain way and she's familiar with it. It's just a, a gentle window into the Lord Uh, Such a sweet and personal picture of his relationship with this saint. And he sends her off as the first eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus, to his resurrected body. And look how further personal Jesus is with the message that he sends her off with. In verse 17, he says, go to my brothers, the disciples, But he calls them my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. So personal. What great assurance and what great hope. Not only is he alive, but he is ascending to the father. And you might think, well, why is that hope? Why is that assurance? Why is that encouraging? If he's going away, ascending to the father. Well, because he's been explaining these things. In John 14 to 17, Jesus had the disciples in an upper room for a while, and he explained what's coming. He explained that he's going away, but he'll send the Spirit. That he's going away, but to prepare a place for them. He's going away to be with his Father, and one day he will bring us to himself, and we shall behold his glory. They just heard these things in recent days. And so when... When the disciples hear from Mary, I'm going to my father and your father. It's a reminder of all that Jesus said back in John 14 to 17. But don't forget the messenger. Mary was the first person that Jesus appeared to and the first to bear witness to his resurrection. That's very important especially for this culture and time, the Bible's time. In first century Jewish world, women were not allowed to be witnesses in a court. Not even a group of them who saw the same thing. They were considered untrustworthy. Jesus rejects that sinful sexism by using Mary as the first to see his risen body and the first to give powerful witness to the truth. It is a powerful witness. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus were something that was made up by his disciples after he died, and he really didn't rise from the dead, just a story that was fabricated to keep this thing going, well, you wouldn't pick Mary as the first person uh, for evidence, as the first person to, to be witness. You wouldn't say, no, 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 we believe it. Because Mary said so. You wouldn't come up with that. And remember, this is Mary Magdalene. 
This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, before she met Jesus, had seven demons in her. Not a trustworthy witness as far as human witnesses go, according to human wisdom, but it is a true witness, a real witness, and a sweet and dear witness. And so she does just what Jesus says. In verse 18, she tells the disciples that Jesus is alive and everything else that he said. Then thirdly, a third scene, Jesus appears to fearful disciples. He appears to fearful disciples, verses 19 to 23. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is after Mary has said he's alive and he's ascending to the Father and your Father. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It goes on to talk about his commission to them. Jesus said to them, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there are a couple of head scratchers here. One is that Jesus said here, receive the Holy Spirit. And those of us familiar with the Bible are more familiar with that being in Acts 1.8 when Jesus promised you'll receive the Holy Spirit and then in power you'll preach to the nations. And then in Acts 2, it happens. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the Spirit and they speak powerfully and men and women are saved. Here, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit either as a foreshadow of what's to come or as a foretaste of what's to come. Perhaps he was giving them part of the indwelling Holy Spirit in a sense or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit without yet the power of the Holy Spirit for preaching and evangelism. The other head scratcher is verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Even we Christians aren't used to this kind of wording But it's simply a different way of putting what we are used to, what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28 talks about this, where Jesus said to the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In John 20, he's just talking about that very thing, but he's using language we're not familiar with. He's saying, You forgive. And as you forgive, I have forgiven them. What he's really pointing out is is that the disciples are God's representation to the world. His disciples are, are doing his forgiveness business and spreading it abroad. And so in that sense, they can say, believe and be forgiven. You believe? You're forgiven then. You don't believe? Well, you're not forgiven. You're not forgiven by him if you remain in that unbelief. Here's how it's put in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
It says, Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ was God reconciling the world to himself. And it goes on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, where God is making his appeal through us. The disciples hear this commission. They receive something of the Holy Spirit, and they're glad. They're moved from fear of danger and threat and torture and death. They're moved from that to peace and to gladness and even to mission. But then the story focuses in on one disciple who wasn't there that day. Number four, Jesus appears to doubting Thomas. To doubting Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What a great confession. What a great reversal. What a great swing of the pendulum here. From such serious, bold doubt to such great faith and confession. At first, Thomas refuses to believe the witnesses of his friends. They saw they heard, they saw the, the marks themselves, they told Thomas. Verse 25 says, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And yet, he boldly says, uh-uh, not enough, I must touch it. I must see it and touch the holes. And apparently that was his position for eight days. Imagine those eight days, the disciples would keep telling them, I'm telling you, we saw them, we heard them, it looked real, it wasn't fake, it wasn't like those fake bullet holes that people put on cars and they're not real. He didn't have one of those in his hand. Thomas doesn't believe. And then Jesus shows up. He's so patient and gentle with Thomas's doubt. We wouldn't be, we would, we would just go off, wouldn't we? you got to be kidding me, Thomas. We've been together three years. I told you over and over again I was going to rise from the dead. They said it happened. You don't believe? No. His first words are, peace be with you. Peace. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, peace, peace. Things are all right. And yet, Thomas is also slightly rebuked by the Lord. He says in verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. And how does Thomas react? We're not told whether he actually put his finger in Jesus' wounds. He probably didn't because it doesn't say that he did. He doesn't need to. Here's why he doesn't need to. It's not just because of what Jesus said and how Jesus looked and what he heard. It's also that he hears this specifically. Jesus saying, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. Someone else said this, Thomas, and Jesus wasn't there. 
Jesus knows. He heard. He's God. And that's why Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Each of those words deserves careful attention if we had the time. My Lord and my God. It's personal. My, my, not the Lord and God. He's Lord and God. Jesus is the king and he's God himself. Distinct from the Father, yes, and the Spirit. Three persons, one God, each being fully God. So Thomas moves from doubt to belief, from doubt to worship, and gives us really the culmination of John's gospel account. This sort of doubt fixed with belief because the risen Savior is right in front of their eyes. Now, lastly, Jesus and John call you to believe. Yes, you. It's a book 2,000 years old, but it's written with with the future in mind. They call you to believe. You see in verse 20, still speaking of Thomas, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We won't see him, but we believe. We've heard. How'd we hear? Well, then John describes his whole purpose for the book, verse 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, in other words, were eyewitnesses, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those who don't see may yet still believe Thomas should have believed without seeing. He should have believed the testimony of the disciples, his friends. If Thomas were with us today, I'm sure he'd insist that you don't have to see or touch Jesus in order to believe. In that sense, he's an unlikely witness for us. In that sense, we could say Jesus appeared to Thomas as much for our sake as his. As much for our salvation as his. Jesus appeared to them so that they would write it down, so that we would read it and talk about it and believe it. That's why this book was written. That you may believe, specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. The Son of God and God himself, Lord and God. The teacher, but so much more than a teacher. We're to believe this because we have first-hand account and because these people were changed. The resurrection changed these people. What an emotional pendulum we see from, from fear to faith and from doubt to worship. And if we read on into the book of Acts, we would read that they were willing to die for this belief. And this belief, even though it was it was. Uh, They were attempting to squash it, the Jewish leaders and the Romans. It spread like wildfire, and it's still spreading today. Chuck Colson, who was involved in Watergate with Nixon, and then went to prison and then became an evangelical Christian, he wrote an essay called Watergate and the Resurrection. 
He said that with the Watergate scandal, 10 men couldn't keep up their lies for two weeks. Imprisonment was threatened, and they folded. They gave up. They fessed up. Colson's point is obvious, isn't it? The disciples couldn't have made up the story of Jesus' resurrection. In this chapter alone, you have three different appearances. You have 13 people, at least in John 20, who saw Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once at one time. You got names all over the place. You got Joseph of Arimathea in his tomb. Back in chapter 19, you're even told the location of that tomb. It's the tomb in the garden near the place where Jesus was crucified. In other words, go look for it. We may not find it today. Who knows which of the tombs it is over there today. But, but back then, you could go and find that tomb and you could see it's empty. It's empty. They kept the story straight. Because it's not just a story. It's true and real and life-changing. They kept the story straight even when torment and execution were threatened. And the story is still straight today. We don't have a different message now or, or an alternative history now. As Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that on the third day, he was raised. Jesus had to die because the punishment for sin is death and we deserve death. So he died in our place. He had to rise because he's God and eternal, but, but also because he had to defeat death for us. And this is the only way we can have life. It's life in his name, in his person, in his being, in his work in his life and death and resurrection. Have you come to confess Jesus like that? Have you come to believe that he's not just a Lord, but the Lord and my Lord, your Lord? Have you come to confess that he is not just God, but your God? The resurrection changes everything. It's impossible to overestimate or overstate how much the resurrection changed. It's amazing to think of the difference between the Saturday and the Sunday. Has the resurrection gotten hold of you like that? It was the big bang of a whole new creation. Are you living in light of the resurrection? You know how when you record... Um, a game that's really important to you to watch later. And you've got that friend who always tells you the score and who won before you get to watch the game that you intended to watch by surprise. So imagine you know the final score, you know your team won, and imagine watching that game fretting Punching a wall when they score. The other team score. Throwing things. Kicking the dog. Cussing at the kids. And your wife might say, didn't Jim tell you the score? Don't you know who won? Are you insane? Well, we do something similar. When we Christians already know the final outcome, but act like we don't. We need to operate like we know the outcome, which we do. 
we must live like we know that Jesus is risen and we will rise with him. That he will come again, that he will bring us to himself, that we will behold his glory, that we will be with the Father because it's his Father and our Father. We sometimes forget that we're cleansed. We sometimes forget that he's our Father, that he's the Lord, that he's God, that he's our God. And so we need to keep reading it in the Bible. We need to keep hearing it preached. We need to keep reminding each other. We need to keep confessing. We need to keep carrying our doubts to each other and working with each other on these doubts to bring them to Jesus, who's so gentle with doubts and so eager to give faith, so quick to grant mercy. We need to keep confessing who he is and what he's done and why it matters. We need to keep telling our story 